It's time for episode 32 of the Clockwise podcast from your pals at IDG, recorded April 10th, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome to Clockwise, the tech podcast you can throw out the window if you want to see time fly. Boy, that's a joke from when I was four years old. I'm Jason Snell. I am the co-host of Clockwise, and sitting across from me, across the country, that is, is Dan Moore and my co-host. Hello. Uh, hi, Jason. What's, what do you call a stick that doesn't work? Damn it, I got the punchline wrong. <laughs> yeah, okay, so sitting next to me and not telling bad jokes is Macworld's Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Hello. I'm going to refrain from reading all of the uh, popsicle stick jokes that I have in this uh, <laughs> this canister right here. Bazooka Joe, guys, also yeah. available. Those are classics. Well, it is my great pleasure to announce to my left, TechHive editor, Philip Michaels. Hi, Phil. Hi, what's black and white and red all over? What is a new spaper? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's the replacement for the old Tell spaper. Tell me more about these spapers. Uh, Apple announced that it's going to be holding its annual developers conference. That's not news, but it did set the date. It's the first week of June. We expect, as always, that Apple will give us new information about the next version of OS X, the next version of iOS. Uh, people will speculate to death that there will be hardware announcements there. There usually aren't very many of those, but that doesn't stop speculation about Apple. And I wanted to know what we want to see. What's what's one thing that, that um, each of you is interested in or excited about or, or wishes that Apple would announce at the developers conference in early June? For me... Um, and I'm working on a piece about this, actually. it's I, I want the iOS 8 to um, officially kill Newsstand, which is this concept that uh, I, iOS introduced in um, iOS version 5. And the idea was a great place for media apps, for newspaper apps, let's say, or magazine apps to live. And they got special features. They got cover icons that updated automatically with the latest cover. They got some background powers where they could download things in the background that other apps couldn't do so that when you opened your app, the information would be there, the issue would be waiting for you, you wouldn't have to download it. It was a cool idea, um, but in the end, I think most of those features are either not that important or have been migrated and are now available to all apps. And instead, by making it mandatory that all of these newsstand apps live inside this mandatory newsstand folder, um, I, I, I feel like... It's a ghetto now that uh, I forget that I've got the New York Times app on my iPad because it's in newsstand. And if I want to use that all the time, I can't move it somewhere else. When you quit out of a newsstand app, it takes you back to the newsstand. You have to actually like press the home button a second time to make the newsstand really, really go away, which is also really annoying. I feel like it's day has passed. And when I talk to people who publish on newsstand, they're all generally sort of uh, feel like it's a it's a downer, that it's not a help to people anymore. It's actually a hindrance. So I hope it goes away. And Serenity, I was wondering what you have as a hope. It could be more positive than mine, perhaps. I don't know, for WWDC. Uh, it is I maybe slightly more positive. Uh, I would like to see, in the vein of a developer conference, an SDK for the Apple TV. Uh, we've been hearing lots and lots of rumors and varied things about the next generation of Apple TV and what's that's, what that's going to look like. And... Apple has, you know, been releasing these apps um, privately, uh, pushing it directly to Apple TV users. But there there hasn't as of yet been any sort of Apple TV app store or way for independent developers to build something and then submit it to Apple versus a, unless it's a long and contracted process where they like 
beg Apple to to put their that app on their screen. So I would I would really like to see if there is in fact going to be an Apple TV release this year. It would make sense to me that there would be an SDK for said Apple TV at WWDC. Whether that also comes with a hardware announcement uh, seems potential, but uh, as you said, hardware announcements not exactly the the big thing to do at WWDC. When they when they happen, it's because there's a developer story behind them. So a new Apple TV that supports uh, a developer, you know, an app building system for developers would sort of fit. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Dan, what do you think? Uh, I would like to see Tim Cook personally come on stage and crush the hopes and dreams of everybody hoping for an Apple smartwatch. But failing that, um, I actually am really interested to see if Apple is indeed going to do something around payments, payment processing, paying with your phone. Because uh, I got to say, I get more and more every week. I'm thinking, like, oh, man, why am I carrying all this stuff around? Why do I have to carry all these cards, you know, in my in my wallet in addition to like my phone when I go out? Um, and not to say it will replace everything, but I, I'd like to see them start making a more concerted effort in that direction, uh, especially given the recent security vulnerabilities we've seen, the breaches of places like Target. Um, it's time for you know us to start moving forward into this into the current century, uh, to say nothing of the next century, um, in terms of payment processing and figuring out ways to secure those transactions and reinventing that kind of thing. So I, I don't know if that's in the offing at all. I, I suspect if it is, it might be a few years down the road. But it would be pretty cool to see them come out with something maybe tied into Passbook, um, making Passbook you know a little more useful. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I would like to see um, Phil Schiller, the uh, Senior Vice President for Worldwide Marketing, drive a Lamborghini up on stage, blasting Led Zeppelin. He Mm. leaps out of the Lamborghini, says, how's it going, dudes? And then begins talking about the hockey playoffs. No, wait, that's that's a chapter from Hidden Empire. Oh, Haunted Empire, yes. I was on a long plane ride yesterday, Mm. and I'm not at my freshest. Uh, What what I would actually like to see is... um, uh, Dan hinted to some changes to Passbook. I, I, there are a bunch of features uh, that Apple has introduced to the iOS and, and, and now Mac OS over the years that it, it sort of rolls out and then forgets about. And I think the primary culprit there is, uh, is, is Game Center. I get invitations all the time to play people in games that I don't actually own or have ever owned. And that, that seems to me a waste of waste of everybody's time because I end up ignoring those invitations. It doesn't prompt me to, to download things. I would just like some some smarter features that actually um, uh, connect me to other gamers uh, as opposed to right now where it just sort of sits there and, and, and I ignore it. Thank you for your feedback. Serenity, what's your topic? My topic is in the vein of... Um of Apple in terms of it's touching on uh, a recent news story, which was uh, 9 to 5 Mac reported on two, uh, on Wednesday, excuse me, that um, Greg Christie, a longtime interface designer for uh, both OS X and iOS, was going to leave the company, um, retire. And um, there were some rumors swirling around, oh, well, if he's leaving, you know, Joni Ive is going to take even greater control of design on the software side. And as a result, I guess my my question to the rest of uh, the clockwise panel is, should we be focusing on this immediate release of news? I, I just I am so conflicted on on this as as relevant news for the average Apple fan or user. I, I think it, you know, there's a there's a term in in journalism in some places called silly season. You know, the idea that when there's nothing really going on, 
um, that stories get kind of manufactured. And while this may be a valid story in some ways, it, it's also people looking for something to write about because now that we, you know, now that Apple has ended up sort of codifying when their products get released, which is to say primarily, you know, they talk about stuff in June and then they release some products in the fall. And then we have a big chunk of the year where nothing really happens. And there are some minor stories that pop up now and then if they update software or maybe release a slight speed bump to a product. But a lot of that time, I think, because they're such a prominent uh, company and because there's so much on people's minds and because stock analysts want to talk about them, we end up with this glut of stories that may or may not be stories that end up sometimes being kind of undermined and it turns out, well, maybe this isn't quite the big deal everybody's made out to be. Um, so, yeah, it's I think that there's a there's a sort of breathlessness to the news coverage, especially when it comes to Apple, that is maybe overdoes it a tad and focuses on the wrong aspects of things. And then again, maybe this is all just, you know, self-serving claptrap. So I don't know. Phil, what do you think? I think um, in recent years largely in a in a hunt for page views a lot of uh, tech journalism has gotten really gossipy uh to no great benefit to the the end user um it feels like a non-story to me it feels like a story that's uh that gets generated by uh apple keeping such a, a tight lid on things that in lieu of facts let's uh let's uh try and connect dots and i'm not sure how it benefits joe and jane apple user why uh, uh, an executive is retiring or leaving the company in a whether it's a high dudgeon or not it's I, I find myself not uh, really interested in the story and and maybe that says more about me than it does the state of tech journalism but uh, yeah, I think uh, you know there's definitely a soap opera aspect uh, a regular user probably doesn't care about this at all except maybe trying to frame it in the narrative of uh, changing who you know johnny ive is large and in charge and that's rubbed people wrong and you know first they they got rid of forstall put him in charge and this is another shoe dropping and so it fits into that narrative if you want it to mark gurman is uh the guy who reported this uh he's a good reporter he's he's like a sophomore in college he's a a a whiz at and has great sources um i think i think the issue here is he obviously had a source who said this guy's out and that's totally accurate and then his story also says uh, this happened because he had disagreements with Ive, and 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 so this is the fallout as he's leaving. And I have no doubt that that's what Mark heard from his source. Uh, some of these stories, there are so many personal dynamics at work that it's hard to tell unless his source was like the guy. Um, it, it's entirely possible this is one side of, of a larger story. And although I think the Wall Street Journal reported that there was some um, – some friction. They didn't always agree. I think there was also a, a, a statement about how they were not, uh, you know, it was more complicated than that. And this wasn't about them. Oh, he, they disagreed sometimes. And so he left kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, so there's good reporting here. I think there's a layer on top of it that is some assumptions made about people's motivations. That's always going to be squishy. And that's when you really get into gossip. And, and then it gets really dangerous when you take that stuff and you frame it into this larger narrative because, you know, you're assembling a, a story that may or may not be true. We saw that with Haunted Empire. It's the same sort of story. It's, it's I've got a story I want to tell and I'm going to slot these items in here and imply that they're all connected, even though they may not be at all connected. Wait, so, wait, 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 wait. You're saying that everybody at Apple doesn't get along all the time? Wow. Well, wait, hold on. I thought Steve Jobs personally designed all of these things, and because he's gone, 
there's just nothing worth doing there anymore. Have I got a book for you to read? Oh, okay, great. <laughs> uh, I wanted to bring up so the what seems like the second time this in as many months that we're talking about security on the web, and I'm I'm speaking of the Heartbleed. Uh, rather scary sounding uh, bug that has uh, been discovered in the open SSL library, which made a lot of news this week as people quickly hurried to patch the, the problem and then, you know, change all of their passwords. And so uh, I guess my question is, do we just declare bankruptcy? Should I change all my passwords back to password and just be like, have at it? Um, I, I don't know. It's It strikes me as this being, uh, you know, yet another in the sort of long, drawn-out death knell of the password as a security thing, or and just in terms of uh, security as a practice. I mean, obviously, security on the web is really, really important, but at the same time, um, it seems like the current mechanisms that are in place... Uh, appear more and more fragile. So I'm curious to know if you guys are, are you panicking? Are you just kind of blasé about this? Like, yeah, this is going to happen. Um, have you changed all your passwords already? Or are you not changing your passwords? I don't know. I'm kind of curious to know how this has affected your daily life, if at all. Phil, what about you? Uh, well, I I saw a comment on Twitter uh, from from Craig Hockenberry, the, the developer. Uh, I, I believe it was him. I, I hope I'm not um, misattributing to this. I think you I, mean Greg Hackenberry. I yeah, think. since I have such a great track record already today on this podcast, but I think he wrote, imagine if we put all the energy that we put into SEO uh, into into web security. Yeah. And uh, that that uh, was a very poignant uh, comment for me today. Uh, am I panicking? No. Um, no, I, I'm not. Uh, I haven't gone and changed my passwords yet because I... I I think it's something that you have to kind of wait until the websites that are affected say, okay, we fixed the thing, because it, it, it seems like if the, the, the heart bleed uh, vulnerability is still there on the website, the worst thing that you can do is start changing your passwords uh, uh, willy-nilly. Right. I'm not overly panicked, because I think I practice pretty good um password uh, uh, management in that I don't use the same ones over and over again on sites. Uh, the, the ones where I have really important information are really strong passwords. The ones I care less about maybe are, are easier for people to crack. Uh, not to, not to uh, butter up the, the co-host here, but I think Dan Morin, uh, uh, you wrote an article a few years ago uh, with with another lesser writer about uh, uh, good password techniques, and I I think that is even more relevant today. I, I love it. I love to hear it. This is going to keep happening, right? I mean, this is this is mm-hmm. a case where um, this is this is like a new a new part kind of crime, and it's going to keep happening because this is like having crime it's not like how when are they going to fix this is is like saying when are they going to fix robberies you know it's just robberies happen well and when are so they going to fix robberies yeah my I, tax I, dollars at work come on um and and so it's just going to keep happening but people need to be on their guard and uh companies need to take security seriously and and i and i think that happens a lot I, one of the great things that i saw today that i really um 
uh, endorse is the idea that there are these companies that spend that, that have billions of dollars in revenue. Uh, you put it all together, I mean, it's bi- tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and they use open source software like OpenSSL, which is where this bug was. And the people who do the OpenSSL project say, you know, if they w- if 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 we would get like a five hundred thousand dollar a year budget, we could do a much better job of looking for security holes. But everybody just takes the free software and uses it, and nobody pays them, and nobody's really involved. And that's that's one of the shames of this is that some of this stuff, somebody ought to be funding these projects, these open source projects that everybody uses, so that they can maintain their stuff and make sure that it's rock solid instead of doing what they do now. This is the ugly part of open source software. It's not that the open source part is bad. It's that oftentimes these are underfunded volunteer efforts, and they you know, and then nobody, everybody takes their stuff and nobody checks it, and nobody pays to check it because they just walk away with it, and it's too bad. That that would be that would be a thing that it would be nice to see if somebody maybe a lot of internet companies could set up even like some sort of foundation that could do grants to open source projects that are are um, security oriented for security analysis. That would be kind of a cool thing that maybe could come out of this. I I think Jason's idea is actually a really great one, especially when you consider that there are plenty of companies that uh, like Google or Facebook or Apple, people who you know Silicon Valley, the big names uh, who could easily peel off a million dollars a year into a grant foundation. It's basically a version, you know, a version of donating to charity, except this charity, you know, keeps your passwords from accidentally being leaked onto the internet. Uh, I saw something on Twitter as well, which I can't, I I haven't been able to independently verify, but uh, someone said that the, the, exploit or the the hole was actually committed to the code uh, on New Year's Eve uh, by some volunteer coder. There there should always be a review of code committed on New Year's Eve. Well, yeah, but that's kind of the point, right? It's like you wouldn't wouldn't commit something to Gmail um, on New Year's Eve because your employees are probably off having, you know, a nice cocktail. And instead, you got to think about this poor, you know, hardworking engineer who probably has a day job and was working on this side project probably like late at night, right before going out for festivities or maybe in lieu of going out for festivities. And that could have that could easily be changed with a a little bit of money going towards making the, the Internet a safer place by way of grants. I mean, there are theater grants. Why can't there be a why can't there be open source software grants? So I sorry, Jason, I've basically stolen your idea. Although I will Thumbs say up. that um yeah, uh, I did buy one password finally today and spent an outrageous amount of money doing so. And now you know if 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 one password explodes into flames, then I don't know what I'm going to do. But uh, I, I think it's that's the part where you just sit in the middle of your room and cry with like the rest yeah. of us. <laughs> Um, maybe we'll just all sort of roll our eyes next time there's a security vulnerability and be like, uh, this again, well, it's probably no big deal. But then again, that's probably when we get bitten. So I guess we'll see. Um, Phil, do you have a topic for us? Uh, reports are circulating that Yahoo is going to come up with its own original TV program, a bunch of uh, half-hour uh, uh, web comedies, uh, about 10 episodes a piece. A piece. Uh, and this would uh, make Yahoo like just about every other company on the uh, in the streaming entertainment world today, of course, Amazon and Netflix and and Hulu all have shows of their own. Also, this week, uh, Microsoft revealed a little bit more about what it's doing with its Xbox Studios shows. Those are those are coming in June, and. I guess my question is, why are all these companies suddenly interested in becoming their own uh, uh, content producers rather than just uh, 
rather than just delivering the content that someone else makes. And uh, is this a good thing for consumers, or are we about to get uh, 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 flooded with a bunch of, uh, uh, of shows that, that don't measure up in quality and sort of lower the bar for everyone? Yeah, it's... I think the quality is going to be fine if 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 you know your houses of cards are uh, any example that I think most of these uh these big uh organizations like Microsoft you know they're 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 working with the experts they're working with TV studios to do this stuff they're just the ones paying for it and so that's odd I think it's bad for consumers in the sense that what they're really saying is if you want to watch this show you have to subscribe to our thing and you know you for for HBO that sort of makes sense because they got a bunch of stuff but like if you want to watch the Halo TV show which I believe they are making you need to get an Xbox and buy the Xbox whatever gold live plan and uh that's bad for consumers in that you you know you end up in this situation where you've got a show you want to watch here and a show you want to watch there and you you've got to have all these different um different subscriptions or you have to choose the good news is a lot of this stuff ends up being um you know they want to make more money off it over time so like you can you can do you can buy house of cards on dvd or you can you can pay for it on comcast pay-per-view i mean it's not just on netflix after a while and hbo sells blu-rays and dvds too so i think you know people who really want to see this stuff are going to want to pay and and it's smart i think i think it's an interesting idea whether it's uh, ends up paying out I, I don't know but it's you know kind of cool the idea that you know microsoft has a video channel they can buy a tv show and put it on the air and they don't need to be a network and i think that's neat i i also think it opens up the possibility for content that um you know a network even a cable network wouldn't buy and that's cool too that we're, we're getting different um outlets that have their own sensibility and they they want a certain kind of show and it may appeal to a certain audience my my guess is that the halo tv show will appeal greatly to people who are likely to own xboxes <laughs> and that's good that's a good fit and that show might never make it on the sci-fi channel but it might make it and be a hit on xbox one i think honestly why we're seeing all of the big digital companies sort of going into the bro- not the broadcast space but the the actual creation of consumer entertainment is that the consumer entertainment uh companies by and large have been very reticent to do a lot to do a lot of any interesting deals to make any major forays other than a a little bit of a toe dip into the waters of online streaming and then with their 30-day release windows and things like that um and so for to to make streaming services like netflix like amazon uh interesting and worthwhile for consumers to sign up for uh they're they're being forced to uh, create their own content and get give give their users more reasons to sign up for this uh, for this service, and it has as a result what you said, Jason. Um, it's caused this sort of splintering of oh, I want to watch House of Cards, but that means I have to have a Netflix subscription. Oh, I want to watch these new things on Yahoo, but that means I may have to sign up for a Yahoo service or an Amazon service. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think it's meet the new boss, same as the old boss, because like you were just alluding to, cable did this to broadcast, right? And we 
we all sort of eh, and then signed up for cable or HBO if we want to watch HBO shows, Showtime, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we're just seeing is kind of the recycling of this for the new era, which is instead of us, you know, the cable companies eating broadcast lunch, it's going to be online and they're going to be trying to eat cable's lunch. Now, cable's big and entrenched and this won't happen overnight, but we're starting to see it. You know, House of Cards is a great example, if only because it did critically so well, you know, and won Emmys and the like. So, you know, people have decided, well, this is a formula that works, right? We can totally make our own content um, and we can compete just as well as everybody else. Now, to Phil's point about whether or not that lowers the bar, I don't know. I mean, it can kind of go either way. We're hitting that long tail era of television where the idea that you have to produce something that is palatable to the vast majority of the audience um, is less and less the case because you can both produce something for a lot cheaper and you can distribute it in a way that doesn't require that you own you know spectrum on the broadcast band or a the amount of you know infrastructure to run a cable company so uh, i think we it does it lower the bar i don't know the bar is pretty darn low already if you look at the reality shows and the like that are actually on most of cable television i don't know that we can get that much worse um and you know on the other side of it we've got stuff like youtube where people have been producing shows on youtube that are alternately you know terrible and low budget or great i mean there's some great stuff out there so i think you know the fragmentation part of it worries me just because I feel like like Jason was saying now it's everywhere and you have to have access to every service but that stuff tends to come around to more you know broad means they just sort of using it as release windows and things like that so I think we're just looking at a changing face of of what it means to distribute video content and I'm, I'm kind of optimistic at least about the kind of things that's in there again having looked at what we already have and what we've had for the past you know several decades I can't say that it's so great that I want to hold on to that instead. Yeah, I, I'd like to be optimistic that, um, as Jason was saying, that this opens opens the the gates to uh, new programming that 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 might not get a sniff otherwise, or that might be too narrowly focused, and and uh, uh, that these new uh, uh, content providers can can take a bit of a chance. Then again, it's Yahoo and Microsoft we're talking about. <laughs> All right, and that brings us to our bonus question very quickly because we are. Almost completely out of time. Uh, Phil and I uh, both did fly back from uh, the East Coast yesterday, and it was putting me in mind. It was just a late night arrival, and we're both a little discombobulated today. But um, I, I, I couldn't tell. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> well, what's your favorite travel horror story? Just really quickly, something that you that was a bad experience for you when you traveled. Serenity. My dad convinced us to stay in a Motel 6 across when we were driving across the country in Nebraska. And the morning that we were set to check out, we got stopped by the Drug Association and on suspicion of smuggling heroin through the country or through the uh, state. <laughs> so they had to unpack and search my car with dogs. A drug Organist, Association yeah, is the, like uh, the greatest club ever. I, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, That's not a real government organization. I believe you mean the Drug Enforcement Agency. But I do mean the Drug Enforcement Agency. I do like agency. the idea that CVS and Walgreens totally teamed up to like make you ransack your car. I blame Phil for my lack of... Uh, this happened in Canada. It was the, There it's called the Drug Association. They just give you drugs. They put them in your car for you. That's nice. Okay, Dan, what's your horror story? Uh, coming back from college sophomore year, I was taking the train from Syracuse to Boston, where I was supposed to and I was awakened by a call to my dorm room at about four o'clock in the morning about and saying that there was a train that was four hours late coming out of Cleveland. And I thought, what, did it hit traffic? Like, what's the problem with this? So I uh, got all the way to Syracuse, 
changed my ticket to a bus ticket and got into Boston before I would have arrived had the train been on time. So that kind of got me off Amtrak. Uh, mine also involves a train. I um, uh, booked a train once from what I thought was Baltimore to Framingham, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, the train stopped in Springfield, Massachusetts. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, yep. <laughs> with geography in oh, the Bay yes. State. Quite a ways away, and, and Springfield, not quite Delightful the Delightful town. Spot. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> not quite the toddling town of, of legend and son. Anyhow, as I I walked to the bus station. I remember calling uh, Jason just in case I was murdered in route, so that so that uh, he would know to to pass on word to my wife. I eventually uh, ended up taking a Peter Pan bus the rest of the way to Framingham, Massachusetts. Again, not really the magical world of J. M. Barry. <laughs> that never gets Peter old. Pan bus. <laughs> Uh, and my favorite travel horror story is uh, I went to, as a when I was in high school. I went to Hawaii with my parents, and we were going to Maui. And back then, you had to fly through Honolulu and then change to an inter-island flight. And it was a long weekend. And um, and I'm not quite sure whether there were weather issues or what. But when we got we got there at like two in the afternoon, and um, and uh, I think maybe our flight was delayed a little bit, so we missed our our scheduled flight. So we had to fly standby, and we were in the uh the honolulu airport for something like 11 hours and you know i'm a i'm a 13 year old 11 hours it taught me about patience because we were there forever and we were we got on the last flight out and it was like we were the last helicopter out of saigon it was like get on the just get on the plane i don't care what island it's going to got to the chopper but i learned a lot about patience by waiting in an airport for almost 12 hours so that's my story and that brings us to the end of this edition of the Clockwise Podcast. Serenity Caldwell, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And a a very sleepy Phil Michaels. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Don Morin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, that, that was it. So uh, until next time, I would like to thank you for co-hosting with me and remind everybody out there, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock, especially if you're Phil and you're a little bit jet-lagged. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.